This morning, we're going to look at a few things, but first, um, I just want you to take a picture, take a look at this picture. How many of you have ever seen this painting before? And, okay, and if you haven't, like, I'm not saying you necessarily have seen it in, in person, but you've seen it in a book, you've seen it uh, online, or tattooed on a guy, or, you know, something. You see, this is famous, right? This, Michelangelo painted this thing, 1500s, Hanks in the Sistine Chapel. It's a great little painting. And here's the thing, there are so much detail. There's so much detail in this painting, right? You could talk about all the different things going on, and if I was an art person, I probably would be able to tell you what they are. <laughs> but I'm not. Um, but I, I have always found it very striking, the, the hand thing. You know, I mean, this is the thing everybody gets to, but let's be honest, I'm just not an art guy. So I find the hand thing very appealing. You have God in this with just the detail, just reaching, striving, stretching, and you see it because his muscles are bulging, his veins are kind of popping, like he is trying. And then you got Adam. <laughs> I love it. This is, this is truly a great painting, and we could talk about it for hours. We could talk about all the little details, and you could go and see this. And it would be worth your time and worth your effort, worth your money to get to the Vatican to go walk and see this. And so we were told about that, so we did. Uh, and a couple years ago, Melissa and I, we went to the Vatican, and we did the tour, and you know, for three hours, they keep dangling, and we're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. We're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. And I had heard there was stuff in there. I had heard that there were paintings, but I'm just going to be honest with you not being an art guy at all. I was like, yeah, okay, I saw a lot of art. I'm going to get to the Sistine Chapel, and I'm like, at least I'm going to see the hand thing, and then I'm going to go and have some gelato. Like, that was totally my <laughs> philosophy. And then we walked into the Sistine Chapel, and I thought all I was going to see was this hand thing. And then you walk in, and you see this picture. And this little tiny screen does no justice to the Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel, it's like 150 feet long, 50 feet wide, and this is the ceiling. I mean, you look around, there is so much going on. It's crazy. You're looking around, you don't know where to look. I remember it took me a few minutes to even remember, oh, I'm supposed to look for the hand thing. And it took me a while to find it, even though I knew it was supposedly in the middle of the room. There is just so much detail. And here's the thing. There's so much going on that you really take none of the details away. You don't have time to absorb the details. You don't have time to look at the intricacies of the hands and all the other things going on in this painting. You simply just stare, and all you can do is be in awe. That's all you can do when you see this. Well, here's why I bring this up. This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. And my hope is, as we go through the book of Exodus, that you would have a Sistine Chapel type of experience. And what I mean by that is this. Typically, when we go through the book of Exodus, we take it one story at a time. One little frame, one little snapshot. And when we do that, we're able to talk about all the details that are in those stories. So we talk about the burning bush. We talk about the ten plagues. We talk about the, the, the Red Sea. You know, and all those little things in between. And when we do, we're able to, to get onto all the nuances and take something very meaty away from what it is that we're seeing. That's very typical. We're not going to do that today. Today, instead of looking at the single frames, I'm hoping that you're going to walk in and you're going to see the entire story. Frankly, as we go through the story of Scripture, that's kind of the approach we're taking. 
where we're not going to dig into the little frames of the Sistine Chapel. We're going to see the entire thing, and all you're going to be able to do is be like, whoa. And there's going to be some of you this morning that are going to go, well, what about, what about this? What about, 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 what about? We're not going to cover the whatabouts today. Wednesday, though, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't been able to make it on Wednesday nights, Wednesday we will dig into the whatabouts, and Wednesdays have really been a cool time to do that together. So if you're, you're down, come, come on Wednesday nights, have some food, and join us for that. But today, like I said, I'm going to blitz through the story. My goal is to kind of just sprint through the entire thing, and then when I get through it, I just want to share some reflections. That's it. I'm going to paint the picture, share some reflections, and the reflections are theological in nature. And what I mean by that is they're solely focused on what they reveal to us about God. Because if you didn't realize this, the story of Exodus is a theological story. It's a story of salvation, but it's all about who God is and what God is doing. It's not anthropological. It's not about us. And that's incredibly significant because as we go through, typically we usually focus on Moses. But no, what's going to be very clear when you see the entire picture, it's not about us. It's all about God. And when you see the entire picture and you realize it's all about who God is and what God is doing, you can simply just stare in awe and say, man, this God is good. That's it. So that's what we're doing this morning. So uh, let's start with the story. The story, it, it picks up about 400 years from where we left off last week. Now, if you remember, we ended Genesis last week with Joseph, and, or excuse me, with Jacob and his sons, which are now known as Israel, the people of Israel. They had just moved from the promised land of Canaan into Egypt. And things were going well. They ended on pretty good terms. I mean, they had moved in. They had been given the choice land. And Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, he was the second in command of Pharaoh. So he was like a top guy. Israel was looking pretty good. Things were going to go well. But then you flip the page and you start Exodus and you find, man, the 400 years have not been good to Israel at all. Turns out, over the span of that 400 years, Israel, the people group, just bred like rabbits. Apparently, they just like, were really good at making babies. And their population numbers just continued to swell. This small group that started with about 70, by the time they leave, is over a million people. So over the span of 400 years, they just grow and grow and grow. And so what happens, though, is as Egypt, the Egyptians, see the Israelites continue to grow, they become afraid that one day the Israelites are going to outnumber them and be able to kick out or overthrow the Egyptians. So the Egyptians strike first, and they enslave Israel before Israel has the ability to kind of fight back. Now, what happens when we start our story, though, is we find that the 400 years have happened. Israel's been enslaved for hundreds of years. In fact, Israel's been enslaved longer than America has existed as a nation. And I say that because you and I think America's been around for a long time. It's been around forever. This is just how we do life. That's how Israel would have felt about their captivity. They didn't know any different. It's all they had ever known was captivity, and they had no hope about it. Also, as we enter into this 400 years, we are introduced to a character that is awful. His name is Pharaoh. He is the king of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh is, as I said, he's just terrible. And what makes him so terrible is this. He is, he is a ruthless incarnate form of evil. And we see this because he continually tears down the humanity of the Israelites. He works them brutally, ruthlessly 
terrible things that he does. And then this guy is so bad that he has warped the definition of what is good and what is evil according to his own image. And we know this because at one point, Pharaoh decides, you know what, I'm just going to start killing the infant boys of the Israelites. That's become good to Pharaoh. As a means of population control, he orders that all Israelite infant boys be tossed into the River Nile. It's horrible. And the story of Exodus really picks up in chapter 2 with one of those infant boys that's thrown into the Nile. But unlike the other boys, he was thrown in in a basket. And that basket floated down the river and it bumped into Pharaoh's own daughter who we're told was bathing by the river and she heard the basket crying, went over to it and then drew out of the water the baby and she named him Moses. Moses means to draw out. And so what happens is as um, she takes Moses as her own son, Moses is then raised in Pharaoh's household. He's raised as one of the princes of Egypt. He's given the best education of the land, and he's taught, essentially, how to be a prince. He's taught how to be a future king one day. So he's taught to read, he's taught to write, and he's taught how to govern. He's also taught how to lead a military. All things that if you're going to be a great leader of a great people group, you need to know how to do. And so that's what he does. He's raised in that. And so for 40 years, that's Moses' lifestyle. He's raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's own household until one day Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of the Israelites. Moses sees it and he tries to step in. And he goes, hold on, hold on, let's not fight. But apparently in doing so, Moses kills the Egyptian. And in killing the Egyptian, the Egyptians are obviously upset at Moses and they come at him. And Moses is thinking, well, maybe the Hebrews, maybe the Israelites, they're going to cover for me. Nope. They turn on Moses, afraid that he's going to snap and come at them. And so at this point in Moses' life, he's literally a man with no people, a man with no country. So he flees into the wilderness where he lives for another 40 years, pretty much in ambiguity. The only thing we know about Moses in his, from the time he's 40 to 80 is he got married and he had two kids. He also became a shepherd. That's all we know. And then we're told that at the end of that time, at about 80 years old, Moses was taking care of his sheep one day and he has this profound encounter with God. A profound encounter that'll shape him and human history from that moment forward. And you know this story. Moses is out there taking care of his sheep and then one day he comes across this bush right? And the bush is on fire, but it's not really being consumed. And so he's curious about it. And he goes up and he wants to see what's going on. And God speaks to Moses through this bush. It's very clear that this whole space, this is holy ground and this is a holy God. This is not like something else. So Moses takes off his shoes and he speaks with this God and God speaks to him and God makes several things clear. He makes it very clear, Moses, I am going to do something. I have heard my people. I have heard their cries. I have seen what Pharaoh is doing to them. I've seen it. I've heard it. I'm going to act. I'm going to act. And then Moses protests. <laughs> He's like, that's great that you want to do that. I'm not going to be a part of that. I don't want to be used. No, no, no. I don't, no, not me. Uh-uh. And then what you have for two chapters is Moses and God going back and forth. And in this conversation where Moses continues to go, nope, not me. Nope, I'm not good. Nope, I don't know. Uh, no, I is, can't speak good. That's one of his arguments. God consistently makes two things clear. First, no, Moses, you are going to go back to Egypt. Deal with it. And Moses is like, okay. 
But the second thing is this, and this becomes very clear if you read the exchange between Moses and God, is, Moses, this isn't a story about you. Every single question Moses asks, God does not respond, oh, come on, Moses, you're not that bad of a guy. No, no. God consistently responds, doesn't matter. This is who I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am going to take care of my people. I am faithful to my covenant. I am, I am, I am. He even says, that's my name. I am the I am. He makes it very clear. It's not about you, and it's about what I'm going to do for my people. So Moses relents, and he says, okay, fine. I'm going to go back. And he goes and he speaks to Pharaoh. And when he speaks to Pharaoh, he makes it very clear. We miss this. So often, you know, Prince of Egypt, the movie, they said, let my people go. He sort of says that. But what he really tells Pharaoh is this. Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, demands that you let his people go. Let me make this clear. Yahweh is taking ownership of the people of Israel, and he's demanding that Pharaoh release them. Well, well, Pharaoh picks up on this immediately, and Pharaoh goes, no, I'm not going to relent to some god. I've never heard of Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? Who is, you can't challenge me, and think about this. This is Pharaoh. This is the leader of the most powerful nation at the time. He was considered a god himself. I'm not going to release to some God I've never heard of. No. These are my people. And then that's the other thing. Pharaoh makes it very clear. These aren't Yahweh's people. They're my people. And as a way of showing his control over the people of Israel, Pharaoh makes them work even harder, even more ruthlessly than he has done it before. He just tightens his grip around their neck. When this happens, obviously, Israel's crushed. They turn to Moses and they complain, God, what are, you, what are you doing, Moses? Like, things were fine before you got here. And then Moses, in turn, turns to God. God, what are you doing? You said you were going to rescue your people? This is miserable. They're turning on me. Are you even capable of doing anything? You can't fight Pharaoh. This is the mightiest person. You can't do this. See, at this point, what you got to understand, Moses views God and Pharaoh Pretty equal. He doesn't know a lot about Yahweh. Yahweh's revealing himself to him. This is what Moses knows. And then Exodus 6 happens. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. And God responds. This is right after the complaint. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I am going to do to Pharaoh. Because of my hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. In other words... What he's trying to make very clear in this is, you under, Moses, you think Pharaoh and I are equals. You think we, we share authority. No, no. What you need to understand is, Pharaoh's here. I'm up here. And to prove it, to prove that I am far more powerful than what you think this all-consuming person is all about. You remember, they view Pharaoh as just all-consuming in power. You think he's in control? No, no. He's going to be putty in my hands. He's going to be my little pawn, and I'm going to do whatever I want with him. And just to prove it to you, I'm going to make him accomplish my purposes. I could have just eliminated Pharaoh, but no. To show you that I'm in control of Pharaoh, I'm going to use him to accomplish my will. And then he says this. And he also turned to Moses and he said, I am Yahweh. 
That phrase, the Lord, when it's in all caps like that, that is the divine name God revealed to Moses. That's God's name. We just, we put it in caps and say, the Lord, as a term of respect. But he says, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, I appeared to Isaac, and to Jacob. I established my covenant with them. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. In other words, God says, Moses, I'm going to put Pharaoh, I'm going to put him as putty in my hand. He's a pawn to me. And you need to understand, I have seen, I have heard, and I keep my promises. I will act because it's who I am. God's revealing himself here. And then this final one, God tells him to go say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of justice. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore, I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. Why? For I am Yahweh. Now here's the thing. I'm just going to recap this. So remember, the setting of this, the setting of this is Moses has gone and complained to God because the people are suffering. Pharaoh has like put a stranglehold over Israel. Totally strangling. And so Moses complains, who are you? Are you even able to do this? And God responds, I am going to show you Pharaoh's just a pawn. He is nothing compared to my power and my authority. Second, I have seen, I have heard, I understand the plight of my people, and I am going to act. So tell them, get ready, because here I come. I will set them free. I will redeem them. I will release them. They will no longer be Pharaoh's people. They will be my people. And as a way of showing they will be their, my people, I will be their God. I will also give them land that I promised them from the beginning. That's what the promise that God makes here. Now, did anybody catch what it is that the people are supposed to do in this whole process? Anybody catch it? God consistently says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. You are to simply know that I am God. In other words, the only thing the people are supposed to do is they're supposed to watch, they're supposed to look, and they're supposed to know. The people are relatively passive in this story, and this is why it's important. This is not a story about us. This isn't a story about what we do. It is all about who God is and what God is doing among us. We are passive and we just watch the story unfold. And so as the story continues, you have God begin his divine assault, divine judgment on one of the worst regimes in human history. And so he sends plague after plague after plague after plague. And these plagues, you read them, right? These are nasty he turns the water of the Nile into blood. He sends all sorts of pests and all sorts of diseases. In doing so, he completely erodes the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian way of life. He's taken shots at their gods. He's taken shots at their animals. He's taken shots at their livestock, taken shots at their food, their water, everything. Their world is crumbling around them. 
And the entire time in the first nine plagues, every single time, it's fascinating if you go back and read this, you have Pharaoh getting tighter and tighter and tighter with his grip. He makes it very clear, I will not let them go. They're my people. I don't care that everything is falling down. They're mine. And then the 10th plague comes. And God says in the 10th plague that he's going to break Pharaoh completely. Pharaoh will release you. And so he tells Israel, make plans, get ready. You're going to be on the move. The final plague, as you know, is God says, I'm going to send the angel of death. And he's going to go through Egypt and he will kill every firstborn male in every house. This is clearly a response to what Pharaoh did at the very beginning of the book. Remember, Pharaoh ordered the execution of all infant males in Israel. This is God's response to that. The difference, though, between God and Pharaoh is God offers a way out. God offers a means of escape. And so in chapters 12 and chapters 13, you have this really long, elaborate dinner plan basically, that has to do with Israel or anybody that trusts God can take a lamb and then eat it and take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the door frames of their house. And we're told that in smearing the blood on the door frames of the house, when the angel of death comes, it will see that a sacrifice, an offering, an exchange of life has already been given and the angel of death will then pass over that house and spare those who are in it because they are covered by the blood of the lamb. That's the story of the Passover. And so the angel comes, middle of the night. And then we're told that at around midnight, there was just a great wailing because apparently all the Israelites trusted God. All the Israelites did what God said and they put the blood, but the Egyptians did not. And when the Egyptians did not put the blood of the lamb, someone in their house died. And we're told that in every house in Egypt, there was someone dead. And so they wake up in the middle of the night and everyone loses it. And Pharaoh becomes so grief-stricken, so broken over the loss of his own son and what's going on to his people. And his people are just fearing that if this keeps on any longer, the, all of Egypt is going to be wiped out by this Yahweh, that they demand and that Israel leave. So Pharaoh summons Moses and he, get out of here. So Moses leaves. Moses leaves and they head into the desert. All of Israel heads into the desert. You know this story. You know this story. And so they're there for several days and we're told they kind of wandered around aimlessly in the desert. And it turns out God was using this to taunt Pharaoh. Because what you need to understand is as soon as God releases Israel, they are free. They're free. The bindings, the, the slavery, the captivity, it's broken. They're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. To Pharaoh. Pharaoh. They're no longer slaves to his fear. They're no longer slaves to his, uh, his brutality. They're free. They're no longer Pharaoh's people at this point. They're God's people. They're children of God. But God has a plan. See, it wasn't just enough to break the chains. It wasn't just enough to speak light into darkness. It wasn't just enough to speak hope into the hopeless. God had to prove something even more to them. And so he taunts Pharaoh to action. He had to prove that not only could he break the strongholds of Pharaoh, but he could absolutely decimate all of evil. So he taunts Pharaoh. Come, come on, come on. So after a few days, Pharaoh, just after being grief-stricken and whatever, just decides, if I can't have Israel, no God is going to have Israel. 
And so he rallies his troops and he is determined to just mow them down. He's decided to eradicate them from the face of the earth. If he can't have them, no God will have them. And so he marches with his army, charges at Israel, and Israel sees it coming and they start freaking out. You know the story. They go, what did you do? You brought us out here to be run over in the desert. And then Moses turns to God and God goes, no, no, this is part of my plan. I wanted to show you that not only was I able to break slavery, not only was I able to break the chains that Pharaoh had over you, I want to show you before your very eyes that I have the power to completely eradicate evil. That's who Pharaoh was, incarnate evil, and he's going to be dead right in front of their eyes. So then Moses turns to the Red Sea. You know the story. Lifts his hands, lifts his staff, wind blows, and the waters split. And in doing so, Israel runs across the river, runs across the sea on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his army see this and they're thinking, well, hey, something's going on. We're going to do it too. And so they run into the sea. As soon as all of Israel gets across, Moses stretches his arms out again and the seas collapse. And all of Pharaoh's army is drowned right before their very eyes. Evil incarnate. This all-consuming, all-powerful force is nothing right before their eyes. And so at this point, Israel loses it, loses it. Now here's the thing, I have read this story countless times, truly, countless times. I don't know how I miss this. Chapter 15 is the key to unlocking all of Exodus 1 to 15. Open it up, Exodus 15, chapter 15, Exodus 15, and what you're gonna see is this. Israel has just gotten through the river, or excuse me, the sea. They've made it to dry land. They're watching Pharaoh die before their eyes, and they burst into song. And in bursting into song, they make it very clear what this entire story has been about. Very clear about who God is and what God is up to. And notice, they don't take credit for anything. And this entire story, Exodus 15, I'm going to do my thing with it. So, yeah, this is how I read it. Then Moses and the Israelites sang to Yahweh. They said, I will sing to Yahweh for he is highly exalted. There is nobody like him, both horse and driver. Man, he just hurled those things into the sea. Yahweh is my strength. Yahweh is my defense. He has become what? My salvation. It's the first use of that word, and it's going to be picked up a lot from here on out. He is my God, and I will praise him. He is my Father's God, so I will lift him high. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. There is no one like him. Pharaoh's chariots, his army, he just hurled them into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers, they're just drowned. The bottom of the Red Sea, the deep waters, they've covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Oh, your right hand, Yahweh. You said it, that you would do it with your right hand. Your right hand, it was majestic in power. Your right hand, it shattered the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your burning anger and it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> Does that take a lot of work? <laughs> no. 
By the simple blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. And the surging waters, they stood up like a wall. The deep waters, they congealed in the hearts of the They became like gel. And the enemy boasted. I love this. I love this. I don't know how you read scripture. I don't know how people find scripture boring, number one. But I don't know how you read scripture. But this is what I get. They're taunting him. The enemy boasted, I will pursue them. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. (laughs) But you just blew your breath and the sea covered them. They were so cocky. They had nothing and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who among the gods is like you, majestic in holiness? Who is like you, awesome in glory? Who is like you, working wonders? Oh, you just stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed your enemies. In your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you guide them to your holy dwelling. Oh, and watch out, nations. Israel is on the move. Watch out, nations. For the nations, they're going to hear about this, and they are going to tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt. All of them will fall with terror and dread. All of them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people, Yahweh, until your people pass by, until the people you bought you redeemed, pass by. And you will bring them in and you will plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Yahweh, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Yahweh, your hands established. And here's the key. The Rosetta Stone of the entire book of Exodus, 15 chapters, verse 18. And Yahweh reigns forever and ever. Better translation. And Yahweh is king forever and ever. Have you guys ever seen that movie, Sixth Sense? You ever seen that movie? Sixth Sense? Sixth Sense is the I See Dead People movie. And so the whole thing is there's this movie and it's kind of like a double movie because you get through the movie and you're like, oh, that was interesting. And then at the end, something is revealed and the kid's like, I see dead people. And it turns out Bruce Willis has been dead forever. If you haven't seen this, it's like 20 years, okay? I'm not spoiling anything. Bruce Willis has been dead the entire time. And so then you have to go back and re-watch the movie because now you're like, I see it from a whole new lens. That's what this verse did. This verse, this entire song makes it very clear. This has not simply been a song about how God is going to take care of his people. No, it's all about who is this God? Who is he? And he declares, Yahweh is king forever and ever. And so just think about this. Now go back to the beginning. What do we learn? This God is the Holy One who hears the cries of his people. God does not ignore you. He hears you. He sees you. God is the almighty warrior who keeps his promise. He is faithful. He is the ultimate authority. There is no one like our God. Even Pharaoh, the most mighty, powerful man of his day, 
nothing. A pawn in God's hand. If you're stressing about the election, why? Pawn in his hands. What does this mean? Why does this matter? Because Yahweh is king forever and ever. That's what the story is all about. Look, this is the Sistine Chapel view. That's who God is, but I said it's also about what God did. What did God do? He rescued his people, but he didn't just rescue them. He could have rescued them any number of ways, but God intentionally stepped into their brokenness, stepped into the darkness that they found themselves in. And he loved his people and cared for them and drew them out. By drawing them out, he broke all the chains of their life. He broke the bonds of Pharaoh, the bondage of fear, the bondage of this life of being his people. They shattered all of that. And from this point forward, they're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. They're no longer slaves to fear. They're no longer slaves to some other person, some other God. They are God's children from this point forward. This is powerful, powerful. So what do we do? What, what, do, what do we do with this? Right, every story, you gotta ask the question, what do, we, what do we do with this? Well, Moses already revealed this, or God revealed this to Moses. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to do nothing except sit back and watch <laughs> and be in awe of this God. And look, here's the thing, this is kind of like active-passive is the word Pastor Chris used, and I, I think it's right. Active-passive, because you're not just sitting there going, I'm not going to do anything. No, no. It's this space where you're stepping back and you're going, I'm going to see and know who this God is, and out of who this God has revealed himself to be, I am going to trust. I am going to follow. It's the same thing Moses did. It's the same thing Israel did. They watched God send plague after plague after plague after plague. It affected the Israel or the Egyptians. It didn't affect them. They revealed who God was. And so they said, okay, if this is who our God is, we're going to trust. And we're going to follow. Now, so the question is this. Where do you see and know God today? Where do you see him working? Look, this is part of the beauty of going through the story. It's part of the beauty of going through scripture is we're able to look back and see how God works in human history. But I don't think God stopped working 2,000 years ago. God continues to work in our life just as he was working in the Pharaoh's life. I mean, it may not be as dramatic. There's not going to be as many fireworks going on, maybe. But you've seen this. How many of you have had conversations with people whose marriages were on the brink of divorce? The brink. Or maybe they even crossed that brink. And then something, through the power of God, somehow this thing that seemed completely irreconcilable, God was able to bring through. Families. Well, let's say this. Let's say things did fall apart in your life. And at one point, you were completely hopeless. Or you had a friend that was completely hopeless. They really didn't see any way out of their situation. And now you're able to look back in hindsight and see how God put the pieces together. And how God has restored that individual. What about this, the addictions? How many of you, not going to raise your, don't raise your hands. <laughs> Have something in your heart, though. Maybe it was something you were addicted to as a child. Maybe it was something you know that you still got struggles with and that kind of stuff going on. And you're sitting there and it just weighs on you. You're in front of the computer. You're at the bar. You're whatever. 
There's these addictions in your heart, but you have experienced the power of God coming in and breaking the shackle of that addiction. You may still long for that, but you know, you know what? I'm no longer a slave to that thing. I'm no longer a slave to that. I'm a child of God. I may still have my tendencies to lean towards it, but I'm not a slave to it. How many of you have had conversations? Conversations with a person who came to faith. I love this. Testimonies are powerful. Powerful. The idea of a testimony is you simply slowing down and looking at your friends and saying, hey, this is how God has worked in my life. When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody where you got to share your story or you got to hear their story? Because you're going to find as people begin to share their stories with you and as you hear how God is working, look, it may not be immediate all the time, but as you look back on your life, you can clearly pinpoint what God is doing. And if you're struggling in your own life to see it, talk to somebody. Let me share my story with you. Let Pastor Chris share his. Let anybody. It doesn't have to just be somebody with a pastor title. Anybody. All of you have a story. What's God doing? Your job. That's what your role is, is simply to stop and reflect and be in awe of who our God is and walk faithfully. Guys, can I just say, can you imagine what the world would look like if we did this? Man, can you imagine what this church would look like if we did it? Just for a week, if instead of getting bitter, if instead of, you know, coming up with our own things, we said, you know what, I'm going to slow down and I'm just going to reflect and I'm going to operate off of how God has revealed himself. I'll tell you, if Israel did it, the Bible would be a lot shorter. Had Israel just said, man, we saw what God was doing. It was incredible. It's, it's powerful. And they saw who God was. The story would be so quick, so quick. The irony is this. The irony is this. God has just decimated them, or decimated evil before their very eyes. He is walking. If you read the story, you saw this. He is literally in their presence as a gigantic cloud with them through the day so that the sun doesn't beat down on them, and at night as a giant flaming pillar of fire. He's right there in a dramatic way. And yet three whole days after they crossed the Red Sea, Three whole days after Pharaoh dies before their eyes. Three whole days before their shackles had been broken. Three whole days. They turn on God. They completely forget what he's doing. And they begin to grumble. Oh, what are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> it's ridiculous. There's an old phrase, an old phrase, you can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelite. And that's what we're kind of getting at is, you've experienced this maybe where, where you've had chains broken in your life. You've been set free from addictions. You've been set free from different brokenness or all-consuming powers in your life, and you know what it's like to be free from that. But there's still brokenness in your heart that longs for that that drives you towards that. Same thing happens with Israel. And that's where the last, the, last, the last little part of the book of Exodus is God kind of putting guardrails to protect Israel so that they don't fall back into slavery again. But they don't even get it. Let me pray for you. Father, Lord, we declare it every Sunday, you are good. 
And as we stop and as we, we look at the broad story of Exodus, God, as we, we're not just focusing on the small parts, but we see everything you did, we cannot stop, um, but we have to respond like Israel did and simply declare who is like you, who works wonders, who is almighty. You are our king, God, and there is truly no one like you. Lord, many of us have experienced the freedom that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ. Many of us have experienced being set free from these burdens and these sins and this brokenness. Lord, we know we're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to anything apart from you. And that you call us your children. God, I pray that this week we would just be mindful of who you are we would seek to look and to know how you are moving in this world. And in being mindful of who you are and what you are up to, that like Moses, we would walk faithfully before you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.